So, Bob, I have a bunch of emails here that are just waiting for us to read on the air and answer. What do you say, Bob? I say, I got two fridge magnets that say something, something, what comes out of our faces. Yeah. So. You, you got some merch, uh, and it said, let's see if anything of interest comes out of our face. Yeah. And let's see if anything of interest comes out of both of our faces. This is yeah. the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. And I am your friend, Bob Gettle, from graduate school, and uh, also a therapist in practice here in Seattle. And I just had a great session with a couple. It was I've just been in a great mood right now. Oh, that's yeah. good. Yeah, that's always, yeah, it's it's always a good feeling to walk away and say, "Ah, oh, I'm a good therapist." Mm. Upper tier patron Violet from Canada writes in, "I have a question for you and Bob. I have been struggling deeply with my own struggles through the global pandemic. I have found it extremely difficult at times to feel hopeful lately." I just started with my therapist, and I'm looking for help. When life does get quite heavy and difficult, and it feels like everything is hitting you from every direction, how do you remain positive and hopeful? Also, do you use any self-mantras, or do you have support systems to help? Bob, what do you think? You know, uh, to be frank, I don't remain positive. I can get pretty negative. Um uh, the other day, Tuesday, I was coming into my work day and I was like, I don't know how to do this. I'm not, I have a confidence problem. I'm not any good at this. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm dreading everything, uh, happening today. So the, the point I mean to make is I don't have a way to stay positive. And quite frankly, I don't think that at least for me, that it's necessary to always stay positive. And I actually don't think it's in the cards. However, that said, yeah, I do have a support system. I have my lovely wife who left a note on the toilet that said, Hey, sweetie pie, you're going to get through it no matter what. I love you. You're my person. You're a great therapist. You know, like it was just sitting there on the toilet when I walked in between sessions. And um, and uh, I have my own personal counselor, as you guys know. And um, recently when I got stuck... I just hired a consultant for a one-session tune-up on how to provide good couple counseling, and she's one of my heroes and a uh, teacher of mine, and um, I just basically channel her. And when I channel her, I do okay. So uh, those are the three things that I come to mind. So she knows that you're going to go to the bathroom and, you know, because I sometimes leave notes or things for my wife as well. And <laughs> I know where she's going to go in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, she mm -hmm. gets up before me. And so I know where she's going to go. Is So she knew you're going to go to the toilet. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Do you go to the bathroom in between every session? No, about every other session. I'll take a minute, head off to the bathroom and then... Okay. Yeah, so upper tier patron Violet from Canada, I would agree with everything Bob is saying. We have, I don't know about Canada, but in the United States, we have this obsession with being positive and happy, which is completely irrational. Life is suffering, and mm -hmm. sadness and lack of hope is a part of life. And to not accept that can cause more suffering. So accept the difficulty. Uh, I can't remember who told me this. I don't know if it's a common saying, but um, when uh, I, when you get cold, sometimes it helps to eat the cold. I can't remember who told me that, but they're just like, just eat the cold. 
you know, don't resist the cold, eat it. I don't know what that means exactly, but somehow it helps me. Mm-hmm. You know, eat the struggle, eat the mm-hmm. hopelessness, eat the pandemic, mm-hmm. eat the loneliness and the fear mm-hmm. and the um, political problems. Mm-hmm. Just, just eat it. It's, it's out there, and and go. For I it. like that. That's a great image. Eat it, because he could say, "Well, you know, you got to accept it." But accept it is like sounds like tolerating a thing with thing for, with a ten foot pole. You know, but you're saying. No, 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 no. Eat it. That's what acceptance really is. Right. Eat you, the cold. You welcome it. It's yeah. it's going to happen anyway. You might as well just judo it into your body. Mm-hmm. Eat Donald Trump. <laughs> the, I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> that was a very fast conversation about Donald Trump. <laughs> it lasted <laughs> three words. <laughs> Eat Donald Trump. I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> um. So what I do to remain positive is to have purpose. And mm. it always comes every day. And really every night before I go to sleep, I think about the next day. I think about what is my purpose. For Bob, his purpose is in part helping couples to have less conflict and to fall in love again. Mm. And that makes him feel good about his day. That helps him to feel positive. At the beginning mm-hmm. of his day, I'm guessing he thinks, I'm going to give it my best shot to help people reduce conflict and help people out. Right, Bob? I do. Well, yeah. I don't necessarily have those thoughts, but that is my attitude, yeah. Well, I, I literally have those thoughts. In the morning, wow. I think, okay, what, what do I want to do? And lately, with the pandemic, it's been a lot of making podcast stuff. Right. Either these sort of audio podcasts or or YouTube episodes, and and it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I am in line with my purpose, and mm-hmm. I'm even though there is a pandemic, I am I'm doing something meaningful to me that I feel is good, and I fell in line with that general goal a long time ago, twenty five years ago, when I decided to become a therapist, and so there's always something to hold on to in that way. The other thing that I do is I have gratitude. Um, every night when I'm about to fall asleep, I just roll through everything that I am grateful for. And there is so much to be grateful for. There is so much to be grateful for when you really think about it. So uh, the pandemic to me, it's small potatoes compared to all the wonderful, wonderful things in my life, in my friends and family's lives, in the world. There are so many wonderful things in the world. And then, which leads me to the next thing that I do, which is I don't look at Twitter or bad Facebook. I, I and I and on Reddit, I only look at uh, subreddits that I that I like. Now, some people will say, "Well, you can't bury your ha- head in the sand." And true, and I don't. But there are certain uh, news or social media uh, corners that are quite popular that are just no good for my health anyway, and I find that they're no good for other people as well. So uh, when I don't when I don't look at Twitter and I don't look at bad Facebook, there, I see so many good things in the world. In fact, there are subreddits that I subscribe to that are dedicated to good news because how many how many news outlets, when was the last time you saw something good on the news? It's rare. And the reason is, is because, as far as I know, and the ex- other experts will say this, is that, uh, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And the reason why is because fear motivates behavior. 
gratitude does not motivate behavior. Uh, you know, if you have two things uh, vying for your attention, two articles, let's say, on Twitter, and one is saying, you're going to die today if you don't pay attention to this article. And then another article says, something great happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin today. Well, almost no one is going to click on something great happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, because our survival mechanisms have, they don't get uh, alerted with that. Our survival mechanisms do get alerted when it says, you're going to die if you don't read this article. So if it bleeds, it leads. And so the news and society is hacking into your brain and literally eroding your happiness and eroding your hope and making you feel like there is no goodness in the world. And I will not allow that to happen. So I purposely cultivate my my media life so that I don't suffer unnecessarily. Now, again, some people will say I'm burying my head in the sand, and I say, no, I'm not. I am not burying my head in the sand. I if anything, people avoiding good stories are burying their head in the sand for good stories. So, you know, those those people can can go to heck. Um, Eating the cold yeah. does not mean avoiding the delicious warmth of a fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Eating the cold doesn't mean uh, just paying attention to the cold and, and you know, it, it, there's, there's a fire out there mm-hmm. or a good warm hug from someone else. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I do to remain positive is to have fun and, and – Sometimes that means you have to create your own fun. Uh, you can't just wait for fun to happen. So, for example, uh, I am starting up a fantasy football league, and I've um, enlisted Bob into my football league. And who knows with the pandemic if there's even going to be a football season. Uh, and But I think it's going to be fun. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it'll be fun. And... I created that. I it takes effort. I have to, you know, do a fair amount of organizing, but but it'll be fun. And another thing that I'm doing is I, I want to have Zoom parties with people and you know other kinds of you know social distance get-togethers. And if I wait around to be invited, it's not going to happen. So I just I just create it myself. The other thing is obviously spending time with friends and family. That's a big big part of it. Another big part of it is personal health, getting good sleep having good, um, you know, habits. The other thing is, is priorities is, you know, what, what matters in your life. If, you know, in this, there's a lot of different things I could say about this, but one micro example that I think is quite common during the pandemic is a lot of parents are again, starting to face this week, next week, their kids are staying home from school. And so there is uh, a lot of priorities that you, as a parent, if you have, say, two or three kids in, you know, grade school, middle school, there's a lot of priorities of, that are on your list. You have to enjoy your day. You have to get through the day. You have to feed your kids. You have to have uh, bonding times. You have to get your chores done. You have to run your errands. You have to make sure your kids pay attention in school. You have to motivate them. You have to make sure they get up. You have to connect them to their homework. And, you know, there's all these different things. And what I find is that a lot of parents are uh, not realizing that there are too many priorities to pay attention to. And one of the priorities that I recommend people consider letting drop is schoolwork. Now, uh, that's not a great thing to say 
But when you add up all of the priorities and all the jobs you have to do as a parent, it, it's 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 okay. I'm saying to let that priority be number eleven on a list of ten is what I'm saying because it's a lot to ask parents to have to deal with all day long, and the parents have to go to work, you know, online working or whatever it is that they're doing. So. Figure out your priorities for yourself so that you don't have too many things on there that make it so that by the end of the day, you feel like you failed all day long. That's a big part of it, honestly. And honestly, I could I could probably use a dose of this medicine myself because I, I usually at the beginning of the day set out a lot of, lot of goals for my day. And usually I don't meet all of them. And sometimes I'm bummed out by it. Um, the thing I always tell myself is, Am I going to be homeless anytime soon? <laughs> That's usually kind of the if that is not the you know if if I at least managed to do what I needed to do to pay my bills, then hey, I mean that's the baseline productivity level everyone should be doing. Anything beyond that is traditionally a bit gravy anyway. Um, and just some self mantras that you ask Violet are to ask yourself is what is your purpose? You know, if you don't know your purpose, it's going to be hard to know what you're supposed to be doing with your day. And if, if there's all this difficulty and strife and you don't have any meaning as to why you're even going through it, then, you know, it's going to be hard to have any kind of happiness or optimism. The other thing that I tell myself is life has always been chaotic. I mean, one of the things that uh, is particular right now is it feels and it's you know you can make the argument that right now we're going through something really particular and it is true i mean it's it's a pandemic that i've never been through when the last time was 100 years ago in the united states or around the world but the notion that somehow in 2018 things were not difficult for people and that things were not chaotic and that we didn't have problems is false. Uh, we have problems today. We've always had problems. And I'm old enough to know that we've always hated our presidents. We've always had you know, partisan problems. We've always had fascists in our government. We've always had racists and homophobes and conspiracy theories. Uh, the difference now is that if you pay attention to certain pockets of the internet, it, it feels like it's completely out of control. And uh, when you look at the data, it's it's always been there. So what I tell myself is it feels particularly chaotic right now, but life has always been chaotic. Now, I'm not going to say that it's l- the same chaos right now as it was a couple years ago. I don't know. But life is always filled with suffering. And maybe that's being a therapist, kind of you benefit from that because, you know, our clients – Day in and day out, regardless of the weather, regardless of who's president, regardless of pandemic or not, there is so much suffering going on in the world on a constant basis. And so today I, I, I think there might be more suffering, but life has always sucked in so many, so many ways, you know. Uh, it's not like five years ago people weren't depressed and demoralized and having a hard time finding meaning in life, you know? Um, 
The other thing I tell myself is that this will end eventually. I don't know when it will end. I, according to the experts, what I'm hearing from them, I suspect that this will, quote unquote, be over, meaning that we can actually return to normal life where we can go to the mall and we can go to parties and we can eat out and we can you know, do all the normal things and hug people and not wash our hands all, all day long. I think that will be in a year and a half. I, I think that is that's a pretty good guess because we need a vaccine, one, and two, we need 70% of the population to be vaccinated. And it will take and, – and that's not just, you know, the United States. We're talking like populations around the world. So I suspect at the earliest we're looking at – end of 2021, early 2022, maybe even another year after that. But this will end eventually. And I plan on living uh, another, let's see, I'm almost 50. I plan on living until I'm, what's the average for Asian Americans? I think it's like 83, you know, I, so I plan on living for another 33 years, you know, another year or two of this, um, you know, I, that's doable for me. And so that makes me feel better. It's just like, it will end eventually. Now, it might not. Some people say, "Well, there'll be another pandemic. It'll come down the, you know, the the line here." And I suppose that's absolutely possible. But you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So those are all the things that I say while absolutely eating the suffering and all of the terribleness because it is real. It is real. Any thoughts on that, Bob? The pandemic has been interesting. It's been tragic, yes, but it's been interesting. Yeah. Like, this life is interesting to me. What do you mean? With the isolation and the quarantine and the way that we spend our time. Um, I see Colleen Moore. We have happy hour in the backyard almost every evening, and we watch the birds, and we name them. <laughs> <laughs> what are the names? Uh, we've got this... These three crows was two crows, the Gatsby's. Uh, we've got, um, well, until recently we had a rabbit. We called him Ted Bunny. And uh, how, do you know it's the same, how do you know it's the same crows and rabbits? Colleen feeds them. So they return day after day. And I don't know, but I'm presuming because of their uh, familiarity with us that it's the same ones. Feeds them it, How? She puts um, various kinds of food, uh, anywhere from birdseed to breakfast cereal to uh, pulled pork, on the fence. So they come and they land and they have breakfast or lunch or dinner or all three um, every every day. So she puts out food multiple times a day on the fence. Oh. And birdseed around on the patio and around the yard for all the birds, which are numerous. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So we have uh, the frat gang. We call them Chaz and the gang. It's these little uh, chickadees. And we have uh, these, these birds that don't land here, but they fly across our yard up high, and they look like they're going to crash, so she calls them the Hindenbirds. <laughs> <laughs> and we have the squirrels, uh, Frank, Ernest, and uh, Geraldine. And they run up and down our fence line like it's the superhighway. Wow. Yeah. They're That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, another email here, anonymous patron. She says, I have, a, I have an awesome therapist that I've been seeing for over a year. I love her. 
I love how it feels to have her listen to me and care about me. I struggle with disorganized and preoccupied attachment issues, and I have a really hard time holding on to people when they aren't around. I worry that they hate me very soon after a positive interaction. I've learned recently that this may be an issue with object constancy. My therapist has been letting me text her in between sessions to verify that she doesn't hate me and is still a nice person. This helps a lot. When I'm going to sleep at night, I try to comfort myself by remembering her face, her caring face, when she listens to me and how that makes me feel. Is that creepy? It seems a little weird, and I worry about that. I'm wondering if you have any advice on what else I could do to help gain this object constancy so I can feel less crappy when I'm not around important people. Bob, what do you think? It's not creepy. Sounds perfectly normal to me. Some of my uh, clients have taken an object from my office to keep when I'm out of town on vacation. You know, like um, I used to have a Freud doll and I had a fossil and there's something else. And um, I I lend them out if they're wanted. It's fine. Um, So, no, none of that sounds creepy to me. And one of the thoughts that I have as I listen is, I wonder if there's a difference between... Uh oh, uh oh, she doesn't like me. Oh, wait, I'll remind myself that she does. And just saying, this lady likes me. This lady cares about me. I'm important to her. I, she's not perfect, but I'm safe. My experience is that I'm safe with her. And let that sit on your tongue and roll around. And what I found for myself is that is a scary place to be. It is safer and more comfortable. It's like the devil you know to believe that she doesn't like me. In my case, it's a he. He doesn't like me. Um, he doesn't really care about me. The other day I was in session and he's like, well, blah, 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 blah. And I like you. And I found myself going, <laughs> right? like, don't say that. Don't say that. Danger Will Robinson, right? Because I really want him to like me and I work really hard at liking me. But one of the things that I've learned is be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And that is provocative. And you might lose it. If you get it, you can lose it. But if That's, you never if you never get it, then you can right. never lose it. People strive. It's amazing. I was watch I was sitting with a couple just got married the other day and they've been in like they're call, calling it the victory lap. They've been in bliss really since they had a lovely wedding and they told me all about it and since then they've just been really enjoying one another and themselves and really like they call it taking a victory lap. So we had a session where they basically just took a victory lap. And, um, oh, crap, float in my head. What was I going to say about that? Oh, they were both remarking about how anxious it is to be happy. That they weren't used to it. That it's weird. It's like they're more used to, you know, misery. And misery is a bit strong, but they're more used to not having and always striving. And that actually having and seeking the thing that they wanted, they really want, is paradoxically provocative. Right. And the interpretation that I always have, because people will often say these kinds of phrases like someone's afraid of commitment Mm -hmm. or someone is afraid of of success, Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Uh, And I think that it's confusing to phrase it that way. I think it's more accurate in my perspective to say that Mm -hmm. people are afraid of happiness because they're afraid of losing it. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's, It's like if you're in the you know, the, the garbage heap and you just say, well, uh, you know, FML, this is my life now. 
And then someone comes along and says, hey, uh, I have a rope here, and I'm going to pull you out of the garbage heap, and I'm going to uh, get you up to this other level. Well, there's a number of different things that are you know happening here. One, can I trust this person? Two, mm-hmm. is this rope going to be strong enough? Three, mm-hmm. is up there actually any better? I mean, it could mm-hmm. be worse up there. I don't know. I've, I've mm-hmm. been through a lot of bad things in my life. I've actually established kind of a, a comfortable little mm-hmm. place in this, in this terrible garbage heap. Mm-hmm. So as the person's like, okay, I'll give this a shot, you start climbing up, and maybe even you get halfway up the rope. Well, now it's like, what if I fall and I, you know, go to some terrible part of the the garbage heap? Now I'll realize, like, I truly am stuck here in this garbage heap, and I'll never get out. It's much easier to be like, well, maybe I'll get out, maybe I won't. So it's it's it, you're, people aren't afraid of commitment; they're afraid of committing and then being rejected. Mm-hmm. No one's afraid of falling. They're afraid of falling and hitting the ground. <laughs> you know, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So The consequence. Right. And so, you know, anyway, but Bob answers anonymous patron really well. The only thing that I would say additionally to what Bob is saying is it takes time and you just got to keep going. A lot of people email us asking questions somewhere along these lines. And that's the tension. This means therapy is working. It's it's always going to feel that way. Bob has been in therapy for three decades, and he has been in this state uh, in earnest for at least five or ten years where, uh, you, you know, exactly what this anonymous patron is saying, mm-hmm. where uh, he desperately wants his therapist to like him, and he is terrified of... Um, you know, it not happening. And mm-hmm. and it's a very uncomfortable place to even consider the possibility that his therapist does truly like him uh, deep down and that it's not uh, a false or it's not a someone liking some chameleon version of Bob. It's like actual liking who he is. And so uh, it, it just, it without doing that work, it's worse off. While doing the work, there's suffering and fear, but it's better than not doing the work. Um, and it does get better. And you hear in Bob's language that uh, he, a bigger part of him now believes that he's lovable and likable than 10 years ago, I'm guessing. Yes. So, because you don't seem complicated in the way you describe the dilemma, you know, uh, oh. where, whereas other people, they... They won't even really describe the dilemma the way you are. You know, they'll, mm. just, they'll just be like, yeah, I mean, therapists, they act like they care, but, <laughs> you know, they, they don't really care. Yeah. You know, come on now. Um, so, yeah, another email here. But first, let's take a break. What do you say, Bob? I say break. All right, we're back from the break. Another anonymous patron asks a great question that I would love to do more research on, but um, I thought it would be good just to talk about it briefly here. Anonymous patron says, could you elaborate on what processing means in therapy? How does one process their emotions and experiences, and how does that differ from an unhealthy rumination? I'm asking because I'm working on my childhood traumas and therapy and a lot of painful emotions and memories surface during the session and outside of it. I feel a bit lost because I don't always understand whether that's hap- what I, whether what's happening is an actual processing or just re-experiencing past things. I know I have accomplished quite a bit during therapy, 
for instance, I started recognizing my emotions and wants instead of living as an impulse-driven machine. End of email. But the main question is, can you elaborate on what processing is? And then there's this other question of how can you tell the difference between healthy therapeutic processing of emotions and unhealthy rumination? What do you think, Bob? Well, I'll take a run at it. Uh, curious to hear what you have to say. Um, I think that processing is focusing on what is the moment, what is happening in the moment here and now. That processing is a verb, and it it describes a present tense action of what am I experiencing right now? What is this present moment as I recall this trauma? What do I feel in my body? How do I notice the thoughts that go through my head? Rather than being caught in the story of them, I can step back and recognize, oh yeah, these are the thoughts that go through my head when I have this particular emotion or feeling. What is the experience of my body? Uh, what is my action, urge, or impulse? Can I label it? Can I name it? If I'm with somebody, what is the experience of them witnessing or being with me? It might be curious, curiosity and interest in what is it like for them as they sit here with me right now. My therapist, the thing I love about the guy, or one of the things I love about the guy is no matter what the hell I'm talking about, he's always like, and what's happening between us right now? And do you want us to pay attention to our experience of one another right now, even as you talk about this thing with your wife or whatever it is? And I'm like, uh, 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 and I'm realizing I'm not just sitting here spewing information about the thing that happened between me and Colleen on Tuesday. I'm telling him something because there is something that's happening in the telling or in the interaction with him that's important to me. And he constantly calls attention back to what's happening between us right now. I know this thing is important to you and what's going on here between us. And, and um, he laughs at me because I'm like, oh yeah, that's your spiel, Jordan. That's what you do. And he's like, yeah, you know, he kind of laughs at me. He's like, yeah, you think this is my spiel, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so when I think about that, I think that is what processing is. It's a present moment here and now recognition and um, allowance for experience. Do you use that word in your in your mind or when you're talking about things? Do you say, and then we processed emotions or something? I'll say it in a note, but... Um, so in a, in a progress note. In a progress the, note. The, in, in the client file, you'll say, we processed... Processed something, you know, whatever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I did actually say in my session before our meeting today, I was, this is a relatively new couple, so I was describing to them what I see as my role. And I'm like, you guys are going to talk about what you're going to talk about. You know, it might be sex or money or whatever. Um, and my job, as I see it, is to be a process consultant, which is to pay attention to what is the moment-to-moment -moment experience that you're having and is it leading you towards or away from connection? And it's kind of like... Um, um, the metaphor I've been thinking about lately is I saw this, did I tell you that this thing I saw in 60 Minutes years ago? It's this culture in China where if two people want to make a trade, like a barter, what they do is they sit next to each other and they put a blanket over their laps. And underneath the blanket, their hands are touching and they're um, passing signals back and forth, like a, like a sign language, back and forth between them about the deal. And as they're doing this, they're talking about the weather or, you know, what's going on in, you know, the world around them or whatever, having a casual conversation while they actually conduct a negotiation under the blanket. That is process right there. And oftentimes, couples are in that and they don't recognize that it isn't sex we're talking about right now. I mean, that's the topic, right? But What's going on between us? Are we in a struggle? Are we in a tug of war? Is this conversation leading us into like a, a connection, a sort of like a duet? Or are we sort of 
at cross purposes or feeling um, adversity or enmity? Are we, are we, you know, are we feeling unsafe or unattached? And can we slow it down and recognize this is the story I tell myself about what you just said? And this is how it feels inside. And what I find myself doing when you, when I'm in this place is I, you know, I go silent. And the other one is like, well, okay, so if we can slow that down, when you go silent, that's a trigger for me. And what it says to me is, oh, you left the room. You don't care about me. It's always about you, blah, blah, blah. And I find myself going after you, right? I bulldoze you or I, you know, I focus on you and your behavior or whatever. And then, you know, they're like, they're having a conversation about sex, but it's like watching a game of table tennis and that what's getting batted back and forth between them is probably more important than what they're talking about. That's process consultant. That's what couple counseling is as far as I know, or at least that's how I understand it. And it, it has the same thing. It's a present moment focus. And the way to distinguish that between that and rumination is rumination is always, well, yeah, no, I'm going to say it. It's always either going into the past or going into the future. And it rarely is on what is the present moment. And in the present moment, really, that's what's happening. All that's happening is I'm in a movie. I'm in a story. Now, it's a compelling story. It's a loud story. It's a provocative story. It's scaring, perhaps scaring the hell out of me. But rumination itself is always avoiding emotion. Emotion is in this moment right now. What's leading me into this really loud haunted house horror story in my head about what's going to happen next year or does she like me or whatever it is and um or or god damn it what happened in the past and you know frustration and resentment and and if you're me righteous indignation which is so so juicy and delicious um but always about avoiding the present moment processing is live rumination is um it's it's two-dimensional interesting yeah yeah and normal to ruminate but not oh yeah no no all normal yeah not yeah. acceptance of what's happening right now um and yeah that's you know a really great way to put it Thank um you. the way that i would answer just to add to what bob is saying is i would ask your therapist what processing means because if if you and your therapist are using that term, then you deserve to know what your therapist means by that. Indeed. Um, the other thing is that the word processing has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time because, <laughs> because it is, is used in various different ways. And I, I, I often will hear novice or even just hack therapists use the term in a way that sounds like it's uh, a sound word to use in this situation, but they have no understanding of what they're saying. You know, uh, tell me if your experience is like this, Bob. Like, you're, you know, a therapist will say, like, well, uh, you know, we were processing that thing. Mm-hmm. And then you, you might ask a question. It's like, well, what do you mean by processing? And they're mm-hmm. like, well, you know, we were, we were processing. Well, <laughs> you know, why were you processing? Uh, well, because that's the appropriate thing to do, you know. Like there, it does. They have no conceptualization of what that means. It, mm-hmm. It's it's this fancy term to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. of talking about. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, you were talking about a topic. You know, mm-hmm. we were we were processing their relationship with their spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, in 
uh, and this and the the depth of that for some people is we were just talking about their spouse and and my client was complaining about her husband in therapy we were processing her feelings about her husband but there's no depth of understanding there's no treatment connection it it just is we were processing so in a lot of i would venture to say 95% of the time when a clinician is using the word processing it is meaningless and useless and ah! and and it's an avoidance of of uh, a rigorous uh, mm. conceptualization of what therapy is mm-hmm. so so that's uh, my indictment on that word. But there is good usages, and, and Bob used it well in his discussion of how he would consider it. It's another word for what he's saying is it's akin to this as immediacy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, and being in the here and now, which mm-hmm. is a humanistic thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, another definition that I would also use is that Essentially, when we talk, processing generally has to do with emotions. It doesn't have to do with events. It usually has to do with feelings. And so Mm -hmm. uh, we seem to have found that going all the way back to Freud and Breuer 140 years ago, that when we talk about our feelings, we tend to feel better. And a word to put to that is processing. because the the converse to that is most people will not talk about their feelings at all to some particularly to someone who cares and who is listening without an agenda mm-hmm. and so mm. when we process and so by process we are taking the time to think about our feelings to feel our feelings and to have someone listen to us and maybe ask us questions we're taking the time to expand on our feelings. Uh, you know, as a thought experiment, everyone out there, think about like the last uh, partner fight you got into or, a re- you know, one you, that pops into your head just or an uncomfortable moment. You know what I mean? And something you haven't talked about yet. You haven't processed yet. Well, in your mind, you probably have a fairly very quick burst of memories that sort of emerge in you. It's just like a it's like a snapshot of a couple different details that encapsulate that memory of that difficult moment with with your spouse or partner or friend or whatever. Well, in therapy, we would process that event. You would talk about what happened and the therapist would ask you, "How do you feel? How do you feel right now as as you're going through it? What's the emotion?" And through that processing, which could take literally the entire session to talk about that one little moment, at the beginning of the session, you had maybe like a sentence and a half that was conscious to you. At the end of the session, you have an hour of detail and connections and emotions and bodily sensations and hopes and wishes and resentments and you know, angers, and you know, you have all these things that you've expanded. You've mm-hmm. you've taken this little memory, mm-hmm. and you've expanded it. You've processed mm-hmm. it, and the process part of it is that as you reflect on that, mm-hmm. and you look at yourself, and you notice yourself, and you take care of yourself in a sense, but you're you're taking the time to do a post-mortem on the event for yourself, that it 
that helps us to organize the the event. It helps us to understand the the event. It helps us to make maybe a plan for the future. It helps us to not have that those feelings ruminate in us, mm-hmm. which is maybe maybe the process or the the primary purpose of processing is that when we don't process these events emotionally, they tend to stay with us and fester. You know, we oh we, yeah, it's hard to resolve them, and so we're taking the time to expand and process and think and feel and have someone else ask questions and reflect on us. And that's the process. And in a very simple term, we just feel better afterwards. But in a more, I guess, technical conceptualization is the the feelings have been organized and felt and expressed and expelled so that you can actually move on to the next task in life kind of a thing. That's a model for PTSD treatment right there. And for any uh, difficult moment. I mean, you could even say this applies to happy moments. You know, mm-hmm. say you win a, a race, you're in a bicycle race and you win the race. Well, typically people will process their feelings afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. you'll be driving home and you'll be like, oh, my God. And then I pass this one guy. And then, mm-hmm. even if it's just mm-hmm. in your mind, mm-hmm. you're. You're ex- you're ex- re-experiencing an event, and you're you're expanding on it, and feeling the feelings, right. and and it just feels good, you know, yeah. to to get those feelings out. It's apparently a human evolutionary thing. Um, now, the other question you asked is, how can you tell the difference? You're you're exper- anonymous patient. You're talking about outside of session how you will be rethinking about what mm-hmm. you know you talked about in session having to do with your childhood traumas and you're wondering am i still processing in a healthy way or am i unhealthily ruminating so it's hard to know i mean the, again i would ask your therapist about that because that's a very important question to understand the answer to because you could be harming yourself in between sessions if you're going too fast in session or whatever, or you don't have ways of delineating that. So you really should sift through that with your therapist. And that goes to everyone. If if there are things happening in between sessions that are concerning to you, it is imperative that you work out a plan with your therapist of how to conceptualize that and what to do about it. Don't just say like, well, it's sort of my fault that it's happening in between session and I uh, I don't want to bother my therapist with my own weirdness in between session. No, it's absolutely a part of the therapy, and make sure you you bring it up. Um, but the general rule is thus: if if by you know you're talking about the traumas in therapy, and then outside of the session, you're you're kind of thinking about it too. If that thinking either in session or out of session causes a spike in distress in you, then that is probably not going to be helpful. Now, there might be some distress. There might be some discomfort. But if it is, there's a threshold that you should talk with your therapist upon which it is beyond helpful processing, and now it's going into re-traumatization or unhealthy rumination. The other, the other difference here is if we're not talking about PTSD and one is just ruminating, as Bob was saying, rumination is looking into the past, living in the past, and not really living in the moment. 
So to switch it from rumination to healthy processing would be something like, well, okay, I'm, I, these memories are coming back in my mind, or I regret doing this and this and this, or what if I had done it this way, or why did that person do that thing to me, or you know that those kinds of ruminating, so to speak. Well, to make it here and now, which is something that, generally speaking, is is helpful. What Bob was talking about is, okay, what is going? Th- you're being mindful. What is going through my mind right now? Well, I'm really thinking about the fact that my uncle did this and this and this, and and why my mom and dad didn't help me. Like it's just so upsetting to me. Okay, that's what's going through my mind right now. That my body wants to do that. What am I feeling right now? Mm-hmm. I'm feeling anger. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling resentment. And I and I feel the urge to just roll over in my brain all the reasons why my parents were terrible parents or whatever it is, you know. That's what my body wants to do. Okay. Do I want to do that right now? Should I put that aside and come back to that later? Should I really dive into it and really give myself an hour of just listing on a piece of paper all the terrible ways my parents uh, treated me or could have saved me from what happened? You know, let's be meta about the process a little bit. But usually what people do is the rumination is just kind of in the background and they're fighting it and they're trying to move on with their day and it's distracting and they don't want to be a part of it. And so... I would make a plan with your therapist about how to approach that in the moment. Um, Let's go on to another question. What do you say, Bob? Yes. So, Bob, this next email uh, says, I came across what you said on one of your 90 Day Fiancé reaction videos, and you said sometimes people just want to uh, say, sometimes people just want someone to listen to them rather than give advice. You said that sometimes people just want someone to listen to them rather than give advice. I understand what you're saying, and although it sounds simple, I think the concept is a little more difficult to grasp. What are some methods to better uh, to be a better listener and sound engaged without giving unsolicited input? Bob, what do you think? Yeah. Um, well, um, very basic stuff like look at the person. Give them your face. Give them your attention. Um, if you're talking about, you know, like what are the nuts and bolts of good listening, there's reflection, which is stating back what you've heard so that the other person knows that you're paying attention, right? There's reading minds, which is making some guesses about how the other person might be feeling as they describe whatever it is they're describing. Um, if you ever decide to do that though, always state it as a possibility, as a guess, as a theory, because people hate being told how they feel. And if you insist on it, all you're going to do is invite, you know, defensiveness and, you know, people aren't going to like it very much. And because even if you get it right, if you state it as a fact, people tend to resist. But as my old couple therapy teacher, Dan Weil, used to say to me, you know, if you state it as a theory, you can get away with murder. In other words, you can help people accept that they have very unpolitically correct feelings and feelings that are very dystonic. Um, but, you know, very human feelings. And so if you state it as a theory, they have license to reject you, which means that uh, they can also have license to say, yeah, it turns out that's actually true. So, Right. Um, yeah, I mean, just as an example, in case people are wondering, it's something like you are thinking, 
I think you have a, you know, you're thinking, I think you have anger issues related to your dad or something like Mm -hmm. that. So if you just say, I think you have anger issues related to your dad. Okay, that's that's staying in this fact. Mm-hmm. Another, just a very simple say is simple word, simple phrase to say. I wonder if you have anger issues regarding your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a good enough relationship with someone, the second statement is mm-hmm. usually going to go over a lot better. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, not at all. No, no, no. Um, part of part of um, uh, good listening is um, letting the other person know. How, how they feel makes sense, like anybody would feel that way, which is often the case. In fact, it's the case most of the time. Anybody in this situation would have this kind of feeling. Occasionally, though, um, people's feelings and responses to things are um, part of uh, their context. In other words, um, I was in a war where loud noises and bo- are bombs and guns and someone trying to get me, right? And so now when I'm out of the war and I'm just walking around town and I hear a car backfire, I flood with terror. And you might say to me, if you're listening to me, you say, well, you know, it really makes sense given what the hell happened to you in the damn war, right? That's, that's validating how I feel in terms of my context or my history. Now, whenever faced between the choice between validating how somebody feels as a part of their context and validating how they feel would be like how anybody would feel. If you ever have a choice between the two, always choose. Yeah, that's how anybody would feel because saying it the other way makes people feel like you're pathologizing them and that's not cool. Yeah. Um, So in 90 Day Fiance videos, I believe what you're referring to, uh, emailer, is that a lot of the people on the show will go to their friends. You know, they'll have some kind of fight with their uh, partner and then they'll go to their friends and they'll talk about the fight. And then the friend will inevitably launch into advice. Oh. And uh, and not really <laughs> listen, listen. And Mm-mm. so that's usually what I'm railing against. So, Bob, as a way of demonstrating the difference between listening in a way that's actually helpful to your friends and got, providing advice, let's let's do a role play. So do you have like an actual, I don't know, stressful situation or conflict that you've had recently that you could briefly tell me about? Sure. Um, uh, the other day, oh shit, I can't remember all the details though. I'm sitting in the dining room with Colleen, right? I'm sitting there and I'm telling her something. I I can't, Kirk, I can't remember what I was telling her, but I was telling her something. And then her response to me was really kind of irritating me. Um, cause, uh, it's sort of, it's related to this topic because, um, one of the things that she did was she was sort of, um, trying to give me advice about what to do. And really all I wanted was for her to just pay attention. I I, I don't know if this is going to be a helpful role play for us, (laughs) but what I, what happened was I said to her, you know, I just wanted to be okay with you that I feel bad. And she said, Oh, okay, well, I'm just going to leave you alone then. And she got up and she walked out of the room and into the backyard. And that stung. That was really, and I was like mad at her. I'm like, God damn it, you're just like leaving me here and and I was really angry and then I'm like, well, I didn't really tell her. I didn't really tell her what I wanted from her. I gave her 25%, 30% of what I wanted, but I didn't really take a risk and so she's kind of in the dark. And so she's out in the backyard and she's 
dissatisfied with how that interaction went because yet another time in which I'm letting her know that she let me down, that she disappointed me. And, um, 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 you know, I, I'm terribly ashamed of when I want something. If I want something, if I'm specific about it, it just, I just flood with shame. Like, I don't want to say it. And if I do, I just feel like a complete asshole. And so I have, you know, contributed to this crappy interaction, which is actually progress for me because usually uh, in the past, I would have just fallen into, you know, you're a jerk and I write you a ticket about you being a jerk or whatever. And, um, but no, I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. You did this, Bob. You, you, you do. And so I go out in the backyard. I go out and I sit down on the grass with her and I say to her, I, it's so hard for me to ask for what I want. And I'm conscious of the impact of that on you. And I feel with shame and I don't even tell you what I really want. And you're kind of fumbling around in the dark and then you can never get it right with me. And I feel bad about that. And I'm imagining that you're here, you're really here and you're struggling, right? And you know what? You matter to me. I care about you and you really matter to me. And in this moment when I am hamstrung by shame, I, I cause suffering for you. And I think what happens is you feel like you've got to do something magical to take care of me. And then you never can. Cause quite frankly, I make obstacles for you. I don't mean to, but I do. I make obstacles for you that get in the way and I am causing you suffering. And I'm sorry about that. She had the most interesting response, but it bugged the crap out of me. She's like, don't turn this around on me. This is about you. If you got better at telling me what you want, then this would all go away. And I'm like, I feel my heart rate go up and I'm like getting angry. And I'm like, God damn it. I'm trying to be a good friend here. I'm trying to like own my shit. Right. And you're telling me you're not doing a good enough job. And I'm like starting to freak out. Right. And um, so I'm like, how do I say it? How do I say it? Because I don't want to give up. And we fumbled around for a bit. And then finally I said, you know, you exist and you matter. And um, I'm concerned that you don't feel like you're safe or accepted and by me and I feel like it all gets focused on me and it's a lot of pressure and then we don't pay attention to you. And she said, I don't want you turning this on me, Bob. And I'm like, I'm not trying to turn it on you. I'm trying to say that we're both here. I'm here. I'm in my pain. You're here. You're there and you're in pain. We're both in this interaction together and we're both in pain and we both matter, not just me. It's not just about me either succeeding or failing with you, right? It's about, because there's definitely that I am <laughs> failing, right? But it's also about you and whatever it's like for you to be with me because I'm not an easy person to be around. And um, I feel bad and I want to care about you. I want to care for you when in these shit moments. And um, I want you to be able to say to me, this is hard for me, Bob. I can't get it right with you. And it makes me feel like crap. And I want you to be able to say... Can you just reassure me that, because this is what she ended up saying. She's like, I just need to know that I'm your person. And I'm like, yeah, right. I know in these moments when I'm fucking around and futzing around and fumbling and failing, you feel like you're not getting it right. It's like you're not getting it right when it's my terrible, you know, walls and shit that come up for me. And and she's, she's like uh, blaming herself, right? And then getting frustrated with me because... She can't get it right with me. And I'm like, you know, you're, I want you to be able to say to me, can you just let me off the hook here? Can I just be good enough in your eyes? Even if I can't do a fucking thing to fix it. And, um, 
that's what I want. That's what I want for you. And she's kind of chewing on it. And she's sort of softening a little bit. And, and, um, I don't remember what happened next. It flew out of my head. Hmm. Well, it's a beautiful story in a lot of ways. Hmm. And I was with you until the sharp drop off at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a tough moment. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and man, can I relate? Yeah. I, I imagine a lot of people can relate. Mm. I mean, there's just so much there to relate to. Mm. Uh, the difference, I think, for you and Colleen is that you've been through so much therapy individually and together that you mm. have this really great overt way of talking about what's happening. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have enough time hearing that kind of. Um, experience because I think you're mm-hmm. I think you're illuminating something that is universal that mm. you know you were talking about she's you're talking about something and then mm-hmm. she says something and it it just sort of stings because she's not really listening mm-hmm. or it doesn't feel like she's listening listening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it hurts mm-hmm. and then and then you're like oh you know there's this why in the road of like okay under normal circumstances, I would just go down a <laughs> a self hatred resentment spiral. But you know, I I, I want to be better, and so I'm going to try, and I trust her enough, and I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna say it, but it's going to come out kind of weird because I'm not in the best of moods at this moment, and then and then uh, she gets real hurt, which of course is just so. Um. You just feel so bad, mm-hmm. you know, like, ah, God damn it. Like mm-hmm. I was, I was just trying to give a little bit of feedback and I thought things could get back on the rails, but now we're more off the rails and now I'm a bad person. And now, mm-hmm. now we're in the thick of it. And she walked out. So what do I do? And this is so scary. And okay. Like what? I, you know. And you know, you muddle your way through it, and the way you described it, I think, is just is you know just really beautiful. Thanks. So, so that's my role played response. Can I give you feedback? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what people can't see is that you and I are looking at each other through a Zoom thing. Yeah. And so, what they can't see is that you're looking at me. I can tell you're looking at me. You know the way people look at the screens. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're clearly paying attention to me. You're giving me your face, your attention. And then I finished the story and you said something. Um, you said, I'm with you until there was a sharp drop off, right? <laughs> Which is a wonderfully human response. Because, of course, that's exactly what happened. And you have uh, self-awareness and immediacy. So you're able to kind of locate yourself. It's like, oh, that was kind of a sharp drop off, right? And that's like, I'm not sure where I'm at right now because there's no... The story just suddenly stopped, you know, like 95% of the way well, through. Well, and also, and then, there was no happy ending. Like, you didn't no, say, and then wasn't. we kissed and made up and everything no. was fine. It was just like, yeah, I don't remember what happened after that. And I'm I just don't like, remember. Ah, you know. Yeah, right, right. So, so 
in terms of pe- folks who are interested in what does it mean to be a good listener, part of what it means to be a good listener is to be a fucking real human in front of the other person, which is one of Kirk's, one of your strengths is you're like, okay, that was a kind of a sharp drop off and you kind of laughed and we both kind of chuckled about it. Right. But you're just, you're not one upping me. You're not one downing. You're, you're just another human who's listening to a story and relating and then um, recognizing your response to it and then sharing that a little bit with me. So in your listening, you're actually talking about yourself. Oh, sharp drop off, not sure what to do. And right. and this is part of what it is to be a good listener because I feel your humanity and your interest and your care implicit in all that. Right. And then the other things you did is you sort of, I think you just sort of process, processed it. You kind of rattled around in your head until you got your bearings and you started reflecting back to me the things that I told you. Yeah. And then you made a guess. You said, you trust her enough and I'm like oh I hadn't thought about that it's true I walk out into the backyard it's because I trust her enough it didn't occur to me until you said it that oh right I was actually and I was like oh yeah and it's actually me if you want to talk about processing again this is me adding that tidbit to the story and um, reshuffling the cards in my head Yeah, um, having a more granular or more mm, rich understanding of what happened because there's a bit of reflection to me like bob this is you being trusting oh oh yeah it was and then you said the other thing you said that struck me is you said you and her have had enough individual and personal counseling that you have a way of talking with one another and then i can't remember what you said and i'm like yeah you know i think that's really true and then i started wondering what's it like for you and your marriage and what's it like for other people in their marriages and do they not have a language are we sort of I often think about me and Colleen and I think we're troubled people and we're well matched and we really love and care about one another. And we definitely want to be together. And we, in some ways we limp along and it, it, I often don't think, and now I am thinking, you know, we actually are pretty sophisticated in yeah. our relationship and I, we're not the glass is half empty. We're actually, the glass is half full. Your, your, your comment reminded me, yeah, of my my I have a tendency to um, you know uh, be a little pessimistic and a little uh, unhappy. So reminding me that actually, Bob, this is a strength of that you guys share, that you guys make together or share together. Yeah. So all of those things you're reflecting, you're being a real human, you're placing it in some context of trust and also sophistication. And you're, and the very basic thing, you're looking at me. You're giving me your face and attention. This is the essence of good listenership. Yeah, it's interesting because as you were telling this story, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, crap. I'm on stage now, and I have to oh. perform as a listener. Right. And I, and I was rattling through various different options. Uh-huh. And, I, and, I was, and I was, while I was listening to you, I was thinking... I was thinking, I have this impulse to personalize it. But, you know, one of the things that you'll hear online is people will say, um, don't say I can relate, uh-huh. right? Um, but I think that that's a sort of a bastardization of a, of a better kind of more elaborate guideline of like, don't skip listening and just say, I know how you feel, you mm-hmm. know, without really taking the time. So I think that, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
but the fact that you received it as listening, because I basically personalized it. I mean, I was reflecting back to you, but I was personalizing mm-hmm. my hearing of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I personalized it a little bit because mm-hmm. I was saying like, because I was thinking about myself about mm-hmm. m- moments like that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, I bet you a lot of people have felt this way. And so, mm-hmm. um, so that was my authentic listening stance was like, I'm listening to you and I'm, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, and I'm sort of visualizing what's happening, and I know you, and I know Colleen, and I, I feel like I know your relationship kind of enough to imagine what that would have looked like and sure. and what it felt like for the two of you. And for me, I was also thinking, like, well, I've been there before where you're saying something, you just feel like your partner isn't really listening, and, and how does that feel? And, and that dilemma of, like, do I say something? Do I just let it go? Mm-hmm. And... And um, and then when you say something and it doesn't go over well and you're just like oh my god what do I do now <laughs> and and, um, and so I found myself uh, landing pretty quickly about halfway through your story on just like you know what I think I think good listening is reflecting uh, genuinely and personalizing it kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I can relate to that story, mm-hmm. what you just told. Unless you can't relate to it, then then obviously that you know, but mm-hmm. but that's a part of empathy, and I don't know if I've ever really thought about that that much, because you know the classic mm-hmm. listening skills is just reflection, just right? Reflection. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that you got mm-hmm. in a fight with your wife, and it right. went like this, and. And there's a lack of personalization and a lack mm-hmm. of warmth and a lack of mm-hmm. authenticity to that that I, I, I find to not be listening at all. It's, it's like not. you're just performing listening. <laughs> it's not actual listening. Right. Um, so uh, I think it, you know, it, it is an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the main thing is what Bob is saying is, is eye contact, looking mm-hmm. at the person, mm-hmm. and f- the phenomenology is a philosophy in a field and therapy that teaches a lot about listening and the Carl Rogers these Carl people, Rogers he's the yeah. guy and the, the main sort of tagline is you want to bracket as best you can and put aside your own assumptions about what the person is telling you mm-hmm. and you want to do your best to enter into their world mm-hmm. so as they're talking as Bob is talking I'm I'm entering his world. Now, I'm also bouncing back and forth between my own experience, but I'm also cognizant of, well, don't assume you know what's happening. Now, Bob was very descriptive, and he's good at explaining things, so I, I don't think I was confused. If he gave, if he was a client, a typical client, he would have said a very brief version of that. And phenomenological listening is like, well, tell me more. What did it feel like in that moment? What was, mm-hmm. what happened there? And, you know, you just continue to expand on that and, and don't assume that because they said, a, you know, a few sentences of a story, don't assume that you have any idea what, 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 it, what the lived experience, that's the phrase in phenom, phenom, phenomenology of, of the person saying it. And so what I see on 90 day fiance is something like this. Let's see if mm-hmm. I can approximate something uh, as Bob ends his story. I would say something like, well, so I'll just rattle off some some of the things that I've heard, and it might sound ridiculous, but, but these are honestly common ways that people will quote-unquote listen. Well, 
it sounds like your relationship is not going that well. I mean, shouldn't you be drawing boundaries with her or something? Mm. <laughs> you know, that's a real frequent thing, and therapists fall into that trap too, especially non-relational therapists. It's just like, I think you need to tell her that that was unfair for her to walk out. You you need to draw boundaries. That's that's unfair. You know, the fact that you were just giving her feedback. Okay, it's nice you're sticking up for your friend, but usually the person in Bob's position are just like, I don't need you to do that right now. I don't mm-hmm. need you to fight against my spouse. That's That wasn't my hope for this conversation. Plus, like, I don't think you understand how lovely my wife is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, you're, you're really biased for me, which I guess is fine. Um, the other thing I'll hear is, well, what if you said this instead of what you said? You know, like, you know, Bob talks for 10 minutes about this very elaborate story, and all that I can possibly muster in response is focusing on one thing that he said <laughs> and saying, like, well, you fucked up there, buddy. You know? <laughs> Let's change that around to a different phrase. Therapists will do that, too, yes. which is under a lot of circumstances, just very aggravating. It's like, mm-hmm. I just told you 10 minutes of story and I kind of laid it, my heart out on a, on a platter and you just, you just looked for, you, you, and you get this perception like, I said that in the first two minutes of this whole thing and you've been waiting eight minutes to say that one thing and it, you probably weren't even listening to that eight minutes because you were, so focused on pointing that one detail out. You know, it's very yes. aggravating to have that happen because we want to be heard, you know. We want mm-hmm. we want the person to be in, involved in our story, you know, and and not focused on their own efforts to seem smart or helpful or something like that. Indeed. Um, another thing that people say when I'm watching the show is, like, um, well, maybe you should break up or something, you know, because oh, you, yeah. you certainly hear that. Right. Um, other things they'll say is, um, well, I don't know. It sounds like there's just a lot of drama, you know? <laughs> um, so that's not... So anyway, I hope that to the emailer delineates between what I'm saying is it just listen. Yeah. If you want to give advice after listening, maybe. or Maybe. But even then, you probably want to ask, so do you want advice? Because I got some random advice. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times people will be like, nah, I don't need your advice. Or they'll say, okay, and it feels better because it's, it's at least invited, kind of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or if you're desperate for advice... Demonstrate listening, meaning you actually were listening from your heart. And then say, and I I often will say something like this. I'll just be like, so this is completely unsolicited advice, but I'm just going to throw it out there, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of blab it out there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and if the person wants to just go like, okay, interesting. But But they're also free to to turn you down. Yeah. You're You're letting them know it's okay with me if you don't take my advice. I won't think different of you. Yeah. Which is an important message. Yeah, and I think a part of that for me, my journey with that is feeling like I matter and that I'm smart. Because the 
the more self-esteem I have, the mm-hmm. less I need to shove things down people's throats, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, I think that's a big part of it. You know, I, I think earlier in my life I would have been a lot more unsolicited advice giving. Mm-hmm. And when I think back, I was just more insecure and yeah. um, was desperately looking for some evidence that I mattered or something or that I had, you know, interesting things to say. Right. And so that's the paradox of being a therapist is when you're just starting out, you inherently feel like you don't know what you're doing. And so you end up not listening very well, you know, and yeah. jumping to advice giving. Definitely um, a learning curve. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm looking at a website right now that's got Carl Rogers' three core conditions for therapeutic change. Um, the first one is congruence, which he calls, which is genuineness, being real and authentic. The second one is unconditional positive regard and acceptance, right? And the third one is accurate, empathic understanding. You want to be a good listener, strive for those things. Not that yeah. your job is to help somebody change, but if you're interested in good listening, it has those three lovely elements to it. And he's worth reading about because he's, he's got a lot of good stuff to offer us. Yeah, I hate the way Carl Rogers is taught in schools that he gets reduced to reflective listening. Reflective listening, it's so annoying. Which is um, in and of itself annoying, like I was saying earlier. Like, I'm hearing you say, you know, um, no therapist past week one at their internship talks like that, by the way. Um, But the, the paradigm of genuineness, authenticity, Actual, unconditional, positive regard. like Real. Actual, not faked, unconditional, Mm. positive regard. But in your heart and soul, you have unconditional, positive regard for your client. Mm -hmm. And then empathic, uh, you know, uh, communication, meaning that Mm -hmm. you you demonstrate what, you know, you're going Mm -hmm. through with, Mm -hmm. as you're listening to someone. And how powerful that is you know i'll give a i'll just give one little story and then we'll adjourn so my dissertation was a phenomenological study and i interviewed 10 seasoned therapists about right their, on. yeah about their difficult clinical moments and the study design phenomenological research qualitative research in the the form is all that we've been talking about in terms of bracketing your experience and so as i uh, sat down with these people. I said, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to tell me a story about a difficult clinical moment, and I'm just gonna ask questions so that I can get more details about your lived experience. I just want to know what it felt like to be you during those moments." And they'd say, "Okay." So they launch into the story, and sometimes it take you know 20 minutes, and then I would have random curi- curiosity questions emerge for me. You know, like, was the client borderline or was this early in your career or, um, you know, did the client threaten you or something? You know, I'd have all these detailed questions, but I'd put those aside because that's not phenomenological listening. Uh, So I would come back to the question of like, so what was that like for you in that moment? Or can you tell me more about that, please? I'm curious about... Uh, how you felt about the whole thing or when you talk about it right now, what, what's going on for you. So it's all, you're, you're trying to get into the person's world. And 
it usually was about an hour, an hour and a half of that. And then I would say, okay, that probably wraps it up. And I would just, you know, turn off the tape recorder. And uh, a seven out of 10 of them, when I stopped, they would say, I feel so much better now. Hmm. <laughs> you know, when you contacted me to talk about a difficult clinical moment, I, was, I wasn't looking forward to talking about this moment because it, it was really hard for me. But, but I feel so much better now. And they, they were just like, man, because these are therapists, right? So they're thinking on the meta level as well. They're just like, man, how did you do that? And I'd be like, that wasn't my intention. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to get data here because I'm trying to get my dissertation done. I'm trying to get my doctorate. But it was so interesting. It was a to- that wasn't the purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, the purpose was I'm getting data. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting, I'm trying to get themes of lived experience with a particular phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to help and. So many of them said, this really helps. And so, so in therapy, outside of therapy, in all contexts, if you want to be a good person and you want to create a mutual culture of phenomenological listening uh, or of healthy, helpful listening, like ph- phenomenological listening, so it's complicated, but genuineness empathy, paying attention, putting aside your own assumptions, asking questions of lived experience, allowing that space, avoiding advice, avoiding trying to fix the problem, um, can do so much for clients and so much for your friends um, and just be such a wonderful experience. You know, uh, Carl Rogers in his book, did not think that it was just for clients. He he thought that his model, and I believe him, could change the world. You know, this is in the 50s, 60s, 70s when there was w- worries of World War III and a nuclear hol- holocaust and... Cold War. And he thought that the dehumanization of different cultures, the Soviets in the United States in particular, yeah. could be eliminated if you just had people sit down and phenomenologically listen to each other, really understand each other, and then really be understood. All violent impulse, all misunderstanding, all resentment and ill will will just wash away. And if we can really, really hear each other, then... All of our wars and all of our political problems will just go away. And I believe him, but we didn't really listen to him. There's <laughs> <laughs> an irony. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. Did anything of interest come out of our face in, in lieu of your sticker or magnet that you got? I love this last question. The other ones are interesting too, but I love this question about listening. That is gold. 